0: My guest today is Professor Igor Shakovi, who is professor in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. His expertise includes theoretical physics, nuclear physics, high energy physics, and condensed matter physics. Welcome, Igor.
1: Hello, very nice to be here with you.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, our discussion today, we have some, uh, you're doing some very interesting research. Uh, This is very new in many respects. Uh, some in the material sciences area, but I want to start with a 2018 paper entitled The Overdamped Chiral Magnetic Wave. Uh, You say about eight years ago it was predicted theoretically that a charged chiral plasma could support the propagation of the so-called chiral magnetic waves, uh, which are driven by the anomalous chiral magnetic and chiral separation effects, uh, this prompted uh, intensive experimental efforts in search of signatures of such waves in relativistic heavy ion collisions, uh, you say. So uh, what exactly is, uh, I guess, two questions, uh, chiral plasma and then uh, what exactly are the chiral magnetic waves? Um, and to the extent that uh, I know that it's very, very new, to the extent that uh, you find some applications for it, what may they be?
1: Okay, yes. This is a fascinating topic, actually. I was interested in um, plasmas for quite some time, and I could very easily explain what that is. Yes. In fact, it starts sort of at the um, concepts of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is, uh, is, of course, a very interesting field, which is not that new, 100 years old basically now. But there are some interesting and quite amazing properties in quantum mechanics that um, we don't really have much experience in everyday life with. Mm -hmm. One of those things is the so-called anomaly. So um, the easiest way to explain that would be to say that there are certain properties that we know in classical physics hold true, but in quantum mechanics, they actually break down. So you expect that something, and I will be very figurative here because the concept of anomaly is pretty deep, and perhaps I would be able to explain it in two words very quickly. But the analogy could probably give you an idea. Yeah. So let's say if you take a classical object, a certain shape, square, then it has a symmetry. You could turn it by 90 degrees, it turns, it becomes itself. So you cannot distinguish the rotated object from the original Right and in classical mechanics, there are also some uh symmetries we call them symmetries, but sometimes you hear them as the conservation laws and you could think of them mathematically in a way as changing something in the theory, and the che- theory will not modify remain itself, and that in turn means that there are some conservation of charges and some other things that are we calling symmetric in physics. So in classical physics, we have the conservation of the electrical charge. That's one of the analogues of that uh, symmetry that I mentioned. And, uh, of course, it's also conserved in quantum mechanics. So the electrical charge is always conserved. You cannot really find any experimental evidence that would tell you something else. But then At some point in development of particle physics, there was also found that there might be some other charge, so-called coral charge, that could be either exactly conserved conserved, or nearly exactly conserved. And that was entertained for maybe like 20 years before people realized that if that symmetry were true in quantum mechanics, there would be very strong contradictions to the experiment. Mm -hmm. The experiment that I have in mind, it was the... uh, neutral pion decay. So there is an elementary, there is a particle in particle physics called pion, you could measure how long it lives in detectors in all kinds of um, collision experiments. And you will find that it doesn't um, actually sorry, it lives a little longer than this theory would predict. Yeah. And uh, it happens that uh, I I said it wrong, by the way, Uh, it lives uh, much shorter then predicted by the theory where this charge would be conserved so roughly speaking if there were a conservation of this charge the decay will be nearly forbidden in experiment we saw that it decays pretty well into two photons right and that was a puzzle for nearly 20 years until it was realized by a couple of uh, uh, genius people in physics that uh, it's actually a, Adler, bell and g Keele, who realized that there is so-called quantum anom- anomaly that that charge cannot be possibly be uh, conserved in quantum mechanics mm. it's actually broken by the so-called anomaly so there is a formal procedure of quantizing a theory and when you are trying to do that quantization for some types of theories you will find that some of the charges absolutely cannot be preserved in quantum theory and chiral charge is one of those
0: so plasma uh,
1: with chiral charge will be called a chiral plasma okay sorry you were trying to say something
0: yeah so so I was just wondering so when i when i uh, hear chirality you know i think about uh, we have the same sort of concepts in chemistry and life sciences right so you know, uh, there is a directional preference, or when you uh, rotate a molecule um, 180 degrees or something, it doesn't quite, um, uh, quite superimpose. Uh, so there, so uh, chirality here is not in that way; it's something completely different.
1: It is not in exactly the same way, but the connection exists. Actually, okay. the connection is the uh orientation relative orientation between the momentum of the particle or if you wish the direction of its motion and the spin that it carries and the spin is uh essentially a quantum concept spin truly exists only in quantum theory so In this context, it implies that actually, when we are talking about those chiralities, we mean the relative orientation of the spin and the direction of the motion of the particle. If the particle is moving in a certain direction and the spin is pointing in the same direction, that's called the right-handed particle. If the spin is pointing in the other direction, it's the left-handed particle. Mm -hmm. And the parity transformation could be also defined in particle physics, and it will be related one particle to the other by this parity transformation, like a mirror image that you mentioned in chemistry.
0: And so, so, so we find in the, in this case we find the symmetry is is broken, right? So, what we expect the symmetry were not. If I understand this correctly, Igor, I don't I don't really know much about it. Uh, if we expect the symmetry is not broken, uh, we have some expectations, but experiments show us something different.
1: Right. But first of all, you have to appreciate what means the symmetry in this context. Uh, It's not just a symmetry like uh, mirroring right-handed particles to right-handed particles, particles with the direction of of spin in one direction or the other. It's actually about the uh, overall number conservation of the particles that are left-handed versus uh, the number conservation of the right-handed particles uh, left-handed particles where uh, the spinning and the momentum in the opposite direction so let's mm-hmm. say if you created 10 right-handed particles and uh, only two left-handed particles if this were a conserved properly conserved charge you would never change the overall number of the left-handed and the right-handed particles but yeah. it happens to be violated, which means that some of those right-handed particles could turn into left-handed particles yeah. without any penalty.
0: Right, right. And so, so that's what we find experimentally?
1: Well, experimentally, we are not exactly counting the left-handed and right-handed particles because that would be kind of difficult in this kind of situations. But right. there are indirect consequences of that uh, conservation In the case of a pion experiment that I mentioned uh, regarding its lifetime, you are not really considering even any right-handed or left-handed particles. That is actually the uh, fundamental symmetry of the theory itself. Mm -hmm. But then when you start calculating the pion decay, you will see that in the absence of this chirality flips, it would live long because the pion would not have an easy natural way of decaying into two uh, forums. but mm-hmm. if there is no symmetry then this flipping of the chirality kind of relaxes the uh, possibilities that exist for it to evolve yeah. and as
0: a result it can decay relatively easily and so 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 that that process creates magnetic waves so, so what's the connection to the chiral magnetic waves
1: uh, no actually the connection is still a bit distant yeah. The thing is that those kind of implications of the uh, Carl anomaly, they existed only in particle physics and in this relatively difficult and quite exotic experiments that you have to do something very special to arrange the system, create those pions, measure their lifetimes. So that was at the level of each elementary particle or so now what was realized starting from about 1980s although in truth it was realized fully since about 12 maybe 15 years ago that there might be some implications of this carl anomaly even in uh, macroscopic uh, matter in matter mm-hmm. made of special type of carl plasma So the chiral plasma is essentially the plasma where the particles are massless, just like imagine electrons would lose their mass and then they would be massless particles. And in such massless system, there will be almost conserved chirality. Mm -hmm. It's not conserved exactly because of those anomaly processes, but those processes, they're not super often happening and in fact they could be very carefully described and carefully accounted for but with the exception of this chiral anomalous processes there will be almost conservation of chirality in such a plasma. Hmm.
0: And so so plasma here is what is the plasma made of? Right
1: that's that's an excellent question actually. Well it depends on the system you are studying. There are many different types of chiral plasmas or approximately chiral plasmas even if you take just uh electromagnetic plasma made of electron uh, electrons and positrons so essentially when you uh, heat up uh, electromagnetic system uh, system made of electrons primarily then at extremely high temperatures that could potentially exist for example in uh, extreme environments near compact stars near black holes or if you create plasmas made of quarks that could be sitting at the very core of super dense compact stars mm-hmm. those will be the conditions under which you approximately reach the regime of the quark plasma and that's where you might start looking for those conditions for those uh, consequences One other system would be uh, the quaglone plasma produced in heavy ion collisions yeah. such as at CERN and Brookhaven where they collide heavy ions uh, at extremely high uh, energies and when this violent collision happens you create super energetic region in space mm-hmm. with quark-gluon plasma that exists for a brief period of, of time but carries some information into the detector and we could analyze that those signals.
0: Okay. And you said it's massless.
1: Approximately massless. Appro- so, approximately massless. Uh, the thing is that neither quarks, nor electrons, nor uh, most of the uh, things that people are studying and calling them plasmas are truly massless. So you might say that I'm contradicting myself saying that there is that uh, chirality, even though they're massive. And when they're massive, the chirality can flip from one type to the other. Well, the reason uh, people are calling them approximate is that they have extremely high temperatures. So, using this famous Einstein relation, E equals m c squared. If the mass is small in terms of the uh, relative to the corresponding temperature, so in energy units, if you express the temperature as certain mass times c squared, so if that temperature will be much larger than the corresponding Einstein energy equal m squared m c squared then you will see that this plasma becomes approximately chiral because all of this chirality flip processes will be strongly suppressed by inverse temperature and that's when you could start thinking about possible implications of chiral plasma
0: yeah and so um so the chiral magnetic waves that you talk about in the paper Mm-hmm. um so so just talk a little bit about that um you say that the propagation of those magnetic waves um uh, that the chiral plasma could support that
1: right well um in fact we were kind of in this last paper that you mentioned we are uh, we are claiming uh with my collaborators that in fact the plasma is actually not propagating so when I say it's over damped, it means that essentially as soon as, soon as I'm tra- trying to create it it doesn't want to propagate it's like creating a wave in a honey it damps very quickly and it doesn't propagate mm-hmm. now that is actually a relatively recent finding in view of revision of some uh, subtle detail how it happens But uh, for maybe like 12 uh, years, it was expected that there should exist very well pronounced chiral magnetic waves. And those chiral magnetic waves are kind of very simple. So imagine any wave that you could typically find. I don't know, a sound wave, as an example, you create a slight compression of the air, that compression tends to go away locally it expands and as a result it creates a compression in the nearby region of space so then the next region of space is trying to decompress and by decompressing as it as it happens it compresses the next pocket of the air and that's essentially how the uh, wave is propagating you have sort of uh, forces acting in such a way that something is increasing and then decreasing in this case, pressure, and it self-propagates. So you could also consider some density waves when the same happens to the density. Uh, The density is decompressing in one region as a result compressing next region and so on. So the Carl-Magnetic wave was supposed to be the wave where you have this alternating alternating densities of uh, regular charge for example electric charge and the chiral charge and essentially that goes like this the uh, charge is uh, compressed in a small region of space then it's creating certain currents or if you wish the expansion but the expansion in a, way, a form of some currents that are compressing the next layer also in the way of creating extra coral charge there. And mm-hmm. this extra coral charge in the next layer, then is propagating and expanding and creating again a charge compression in the next layer and so on. So there will be kind of alternating in and out uh, waves of uh, electric charge and coral charge, and that would propagate. Okay. And this would be quite unusual because uh, the usual uh, charge density waves in, in charged plasmas, they actually are strongly damped because yeah. of the electrical field. And this would not be damped, presumably, according to these theories that existed for about 12 or 15 years. And we would see some signatures of those in, uh, in a detector from heavy
0: ion collisions. Yeah, uh, since this, this happens in very, very high temperatures uh, and it's relatively short, uh, do you see any practical applications of this this idea? Right, uh,
1: well, conceptually, of course, this was first a fundamental question whether they can even exist. And yeah. potentially they do not, in fact, exist because of the um, underlying physics that happens there. and. That's, that was sorted out on the route recently. Hmm. But some implications of this chiral plasmas actually could be measured in the systems, even uh, very simple systems uh, that are not as exotic as heavy ion collisions, extremely high temperatures, and those temperatures are record temperatures anywhere in space, really, they are so high.
0: Yeah.
1: The, the only closest uh, possible temperatures existed only in the early universe. So it is extremely exotic, and you might be uh, fair to say, well, this is unrealistic to have any applications. It's not true for the following reason. If uh, this is a general phenomenon, then actually we could find analogs of chiral plasma in solid-state materials. Uh, About five years ago, maybe already a few years more than that, uh, there was a discovery in uh, physics the discovery of new types of materials, so called Dirac and vile materials yeah. what 's so special about them is that electron quasi particles in these systems they do behave like massless fermions, like massless particles with a spin, and not approximately by the way exactly mm-hmm. massless particles in this system, and they did uh, appear to be perfect examples of coral plasmas. So we have some semi-metals. They, they are called semi-metals because they are not uh, having a lot of freely available electrons to uh, conduct the current, yeah. but they do have uh, quite a few of them to actually be conducting. So they are semi-metals for that reason. But anyway, it's the nature of the particles that appear there. And by the way, I should probably mention what means quasi-particle. When the electron is moving through vacuum, we know it's just a regular particle with some mass, has some properties, spin, and many other things, charge. When it is uh, behaving as a collective, as part of a collective motion of all the other electrons, that are shared between the atoms of the crystal lattice of a given material, then actually they collectively behave very differently. They yeah. could change their mass, they could change their velocity. They actually behave so different that they may appear even as massless particles. Mm. And that's amazing, I think yeah
0: so uh, so you have a book uh, that published uh, recently electronic properties of dirac and wild semi-metals so you talked a little bit about uh, what they are um, so uh, these massless particles as you say can conduct electricity right
1: well they are essentially like electrons modified by the medium in which they move okay Okay. So they, they definitely carry uh, charge, they actually uh, conduct current, they respond to the electrical magnetic fields that we apply. So we can probe essentially almost any types of properties that they have. And in fact, I should probably mention that one of these chiral effects that have been proposed in uh, heavy ion collisions, in nuclear physics, in uh, high energy applications, it was for the first time, almost uh, unambiguously, reconformed specifically in Dirac semimetals, yeah. it has not been proven so clearly and to such with such clarity and such uh, convincing power in high energy physics that those particles actually give the chiral effects uh, that that make this plasmas interesting. But in solid state physics, there have been several already types of uh, proofs including measurements of the uh, currents so yeah. the resistance how it changes with the magnetic field and actually it appears to be in a perfect agreement with the coral anomalous effect
0: so so I know that this is this is sort of new um, so do we have uh, these semi metals um, uh, do we have Have you produced physically these these things?
1: Right. Absolutely. They uh, they were produced. They were produced and uh, and tested experimentally. Yeah. Uh, The first discovery happened, as I said, about uh, what? It's already more than five years, six years ago or so. Uh, The uh, materials, in fact, are not so exotic. In fact, interestingly enough, we knew some of them for a long time. We didn't know what they are and why such, they are such good conductors. So one of the yeah. special things, which is basic property, they have extremely high mobility of these electron quasiparticles, which means that they are excellent conductors. Yeah. Some of those, in fact, are alloys that has been known since, I don't know, maybe like 60 years ago. Those alloys were known to be excellent conductors, and in fact, it was even puzzling, how would they have such great properties without understanding uh, that uh, this comes from this uh, special type of uh, quasi-particles that they are. And the reason is that, um, well we didn't fully understand the theory behind uh these particles there were some uh, theoretical studies here and there but some, only about in 2012 there were a series of theoretical papers which realized that some of these materials actually not only are expected to be of this type and have uh, electron quasi particles that are massless but actually because of their lattice structure of those materials, they would have this properties that is protected topologically by Mm -hmm. the lattice structure. And that means, and by the way, when something is protected topologically, like property that they are massless, then actually it's a very robust property because all kinds of little uh, modifications, little impurities uh, in crystals, they always exist. So if it's not protected topologically, usually it spoils. (laughs) But if there is something that is protected at a topological level by the structure of the lattice, for example, it's very, very difficult to break it down. As a result, these properties, they are actually very robust, very solid. And in fact, this is only in some special type of materials, not in all the, uh, the Dirac semimetals. metals For example, those old-fashioned alloys, they don't have the topological protection. In a way, yeah. this property is accidental there. But in these new materials, Dirac semimetals, actually it is a property that is very robust. And in fact, it can be now used in practice for applications and much more reliably. Oh. Go ahead.
0: No, no, I was just going to add, so the, so you talk about electronic properties. So I guess that's what uh, you were going to talk about, right? So, so what are the sort of the physics, uh, the electronics, um, you know, aspects of this, uh, the conductivity, uh, the use in semiconductors, perhaps, do they have any applications in sort of next generation quantum computing or something like that?
1: Well, um there were actually uh, some suggestions that uh, some of these materials could be uh, potentially used in uh, quantum computing, yeah. but as far as I know, that's probably uh, not as promising so far as some other potential uh, proposals for uh, store uh, for quantum computing. Uh, but it is not impossible Uh, we were actually in the book we were primarily concentrating on some very simple properties of these materials even such a simple thing as resistance and conductivity because even those simple properties they actually uh, change and become as i already mentioned they become uh, very uh, good conductors, because of this uh, special type of quasi particles. In fact, when this uh, massless electron quasi particles, when they are moving through the materials, they have many obstacles, obviously they have a lattice they encounter, they have other electrons that they encounter, they have actually vibrations of the lattice that they encounter with, and all of those could actually reduce the conductivity now right. when they are these uh, massless quasi particles in fact their scattering which basically drives the uh, decreases the conductivity it's actually highly suppressed since they are massless and the spin and momentum they are very much locked to each other if it's a right handed particle they will be trying to move in a single direction with the spin in the same direction and their scattering will be difficult and if it's not scattering means it's a very good conductor or part uh, contributes to a good conductivity so, so
0: will this will this take us igor uh, in the direction of room temperature superconductivity or that is different um
1: uh, there is a potential superconductivity and it's also very n- unusual in these materials, but in fact, there is something even more unusual and interesting. There is a proposal from one of my good friends, uh, a researcher from uh, Brookhaven and uh, Stony Brook right now. Uh, he and his collaborator, uh, they propose that in fact, there is something like a coral. uh, Karo, uh transport that could be used instead of uh, uh, superconductivity. So Mm -hmm. uh, superconductivity typically requires very low temperatures. Achieving those might be difficult and in some cases actually cost prohibitive. Now, if you consider this chiral conductivity, in fact, it might be happening even at the room temperature. In fact, the higher the temperature of this solid-state physics plasma, the better they are. Uh, chiral particles so in fact they were proposing that you could use this for a different type of uh, transport for uh, essentially chiral transport rather than uh, superconducting transport and it might be as useful in applications as superconductivity if not more Mm. but uh, this is not directly superconductivity go ahead
0: yeah. Yeah. Are they analogous? So uh, is the conductivity directional here? Are are they analogous to graf- graphene or something like that or not?
1: Oh, a- an excellent question. Actually, graphene is perhaps one of the first clear examples where this Biroc massless electron quasiparticles have been discovered. Yeah. Gra- uh, graphene, however, is a two-dimensional flat material. So that, of course, makes a lot of challenges of its practical application. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there are no applications. In fact, there are already so many applications, it's amazing. But now it's, if you wish, these uh, dirac metals are three-dimensional analogs of graphene. Mm. So take graphene and to the next level, to the three dimensions, and this is your dirac metal. So in fact, yes, all kinds of potential applications in three-dimensional materials is exactly what we are aiming at. So it's uh, extremely high-frequency devices. So one of the things that it's very useful for uh, is uh, something that, um, uh, devices that work at extremely high frequencies, uh, at extremely high frequencies, many materials suffer from losses because of uh, those quasi particles, which, which are not massless. When you have these massless quasi particles, in fact, you could highly increase the efficiency of all kinds of devices that work at extremely, let's say, terahertz uh, frequencies. And that would be quite amazing in terms of applications. And uh, it's only one kind of snippet of possibilities.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, so from my own understanding, so the, the gra- graphene you say it's two dimensional, mm-hmm. meaning it it is uh, it's a very thin layer. It's a single molecule
1: layer. It, it's it's a one atomic layer. So if you yeah. take graphite that you are writing with, and take those uh, flakes that are coming off it when we are writing, then basically those flakes are actually they have. Very, very many layers uh, sliced off the graphite, but when you go down to a single atomic layer or maybe a few atomic layers for the bilayer and trilayer of graphene, then that's yeah. basically what graphene is, and, and of course it's nearly nearly invisible its a
0: thing it's one atomic layer right, right. Um... But but here in this uh, Dirac and YF semi-metals, there are no such constraints. You can actually have 3D materials and they're going to behave a lot better than even stacking graphene to... Um, yes,
1: yes, exactly. When you're stacking graphene, you're actually... Uh, the more of those layers you stack, the closer you get to graphite and more of the properties of the actual graphene in uh, one atomic layer you are losing. So in yeah. this case of Dirac metals actually, it's sort of the other way around. You have a perfectly fine massless quasi-particles, uh, electron quasi-particles in a three-dimensional crystal. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. they're not so rare as it turns out. We just didn't know to look into this direction <laughs> and how to uh, search for them.
0: Yeah, that's, I believe
1: there are already dozens, uh, if not hundreds, of materials. Probably more than dozens, hundreds of materials discovered.
0: Yeah, that, that's very really exciting because it, it sort of opens up a completely new area, right? Um, you know, uh, obviously we are still in the theoretical realm, but uh, as we go forward from a practice perspective, if the material costs are not high, if manufacturability is is possible then, you know, there, there is potentially a lot of applications, I would imagine.
1: Yes, yes, that's the hope. In fact, this is uh, perhaps the main idea that is driving an explosion of research in this field because everybody understands the value of three-dimensional materials that have such amazing properties. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: It was a dream in two thousand, I don't know four or five, just immediately after the discovery of graphene, everybody was talking. What about three-dimensional graphene? Well, yeah. we have it. Just ten years after
0: graphene, we got it. Right, right, and, and uh, the this the, this discovery was in twenty fifteen. Uh, actually,
1: it's twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. 2014, right. So Theoretical Prediction, I believe, was published in 2012. Yeah. Uh, there were, I think, two groups of uh, researchers. Uh, one of them is based in Beijing. Yeah. Actually, I forgot where was the other one based. Uh, there were people who were trained uh, at some uh, U.S. schools, some uh, China, some mm-hmm. in China, and actually that was the Theoretical Prediction. And maybe in uh, 2014, to the best of my recollection, it was uh, the, the three papers appeared almost on the same day in archive at the end of September. I remember like today it was the probably the last day of September 2014.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
1: all three papers appeared on the archive. Right. And the next day, everybody knew about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, very exciting. Uh, we'll take a quick break, Igor. When we come back, we we'll talk about your more recent paper on uh, QCD plasma. Okay. Uh, I will
1: stop here in a minute.
0: So Igor, we are, we are back. Uh, we have been talking about uh, the Dirac and wild semi-metals, uh, recent discoveries from 2014 uh, that have some very, very interesting characteristics. Um, you have another paper recently, uh, just very recently, uh, last year, uh, entitled Ellipticity of Photon Emission from Strongly Magnetized Hot QCD Plasma. Uh, QCD uh, is quantum chromodynamics, so this is uh, some sort of um, quark plasma?
1: Yes, exactly. As I was saying in this heavy ion collisions that you uh, have uh, in uh, Brookhaven at CERN, you create this highly energetic, extremely high temperature plasma. And this plasma is made of quark and gluons primarily. And uh, well, studying the properties of this plasma is of great fundamental interest because we don't see that kind of matter regularly on an, uh, in everyday life, but this plasma existed in the early universe. Mm-hmm. And in order to understand our origins, our beginnings, uh, it's, it's extremely interesting to understand what kind of properties this plasma has. And in this paper, we were trying to, to study some aspects of, that pl- of those properties.
0: So uh, right from uh, from the big bang so this is an uh, epoch uh, even before uh, atoms formed right uh, it, it was in this kind of a situ- uh, this kind of a form at that point Yes
1: yes it was a, a much much earlier than the atoms formed uh it was actually uh, very briefly i believe about a microsecond after the big bang that essentially the temperature was uh, of uh, extremely high value, which in the energy units will be hundreds of mega electron volt uh, temperature. And this is the temperature that is created in heavy ion collisions in the form of quark gluon plasma that uh, comes out of a deconfinement uh, mm. of uh, quarks inside of hadrons. Uh, so when we collide nuclei, those are composed of protons and neutrons. And protons and neutrons are, in turn, made of quarks. But those quarks are kind of trapped, like, inside of bags of neutrons and protons. They cannot escape.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, in quark-gluon plasma, you create the conditions where it's heated up to such high temperature that uh, they become deconfined. They behave like uh, freely, free particles in this plasma.
0: And so can we create this, uh, so the quarks are inside neutrons and protons and you have gluons in there. So can we create this type of type of plasma with the energies of the Large Hadron Collider?
1: Yes, yes, we can. Uh, we create uh, the, uh, the plasma with this temperature of like hundreds of mega electron volts. Of course, the reason for that is that we accelerate them to extremely high energies, and the speed of very, very close to the speed of light. At such high uh, energies, they, of course, uh, deposit this into the collision, and that energy, kinetic energy of the motion is converted into the thermal temperature of this plasma, and that's how we create high temperature.
0: Okay, and so what's the implication of this ellipticity of the photon emission?
1: Right. Well, I probably should step briefly backwards and say that in uh, heavy ion co- collisions in addition to plasma itself you actually also generate very strong magnetic fields. Yeah. It's very easy to understand if you think of the ions that are colliding they are positively charged let's say gold ions and those ions carry electric charge they are moving past each other when they are passing next to each other, they are creating the magnetic field, like two parallel wires create a magnetic in between the wires, the same way this uh, ions will be carrying currents and creating for a brief period of time, a very strong magnetic field in between those uh, ions, precisely in the region where the quark-gluon plasma is created.
0: Yeah,
1: And why this is interesting? Well, because some of those coral effects, they are triggered by the magnetic field Mm. now one of the difficulties of identifying signatures of any anomalous effects in heavy ion collisions is to tell actually how big the magnetic field was during those collisions and uh what kind of implications that kind of strong magnetic field could have on the observable data
0: yeah
1: now the thing is Uh, Theoretical predictions about the strength of the magnetic field are not super reliable at this moment. Mm -hmm. The uh, theoretical uncertainties coming from uh, extremely uh, non-trivial conditions created, so those are not very... Uh, smooth nice ions in the first place so there are a lot of statistical fluctuations in the collisions there are a lot of many other uncertainties and identifying exactly the properties of the magnetic field that is created is difficult on top of that the magnetic field may survive longer or shorter period of time depending on the uh, conductivity of the plasma the more conducting it is (laughs) the more magnetic flux can be trapped there for a while like in the core of the Earth, we have the magnetic field trapped, uh, the currents are trapped, and the magnetic field is kept uh, without decaying too much, too quickly. That's because we have conducting core in the Earth. The same thing there, if we have very conducting plasma, the magnetic field may survive longer periods of time. If the conductivity is not very large, then actually the magnetic field can decay very quickly and will not be able to trigger those anomalous effects. Yeah. So one of the ideas that i had together with a couple of my collaborators is to look into a way of measuring that magnetic field in some other ways so and this one of the ways
0: sorry one, yeah one quick, quick question here this is this plasma yeah it is not necessarily uniform right the composition of that plasma could be different in different experiments
1: well, uh, not only in different experiments, even in the same experiments, unfortunately. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, inhomogeneous. Yeah. O- obviously, it's highly inhomogeneous. If you are creating that uh, plasma from a collision of two ions, even if they those ions were uh, exactly spherical and nice and beautiful without any irregularities, mm-hmm. even in that case, the plasma that you will create will be created in some sort of overlap region which you could imagine as sort of almond shaped region from the two spherical objects passing next to each other
0: okay so and the overlap region will be already in uh, in homogeneous and the magnetic fields generated by that it's a function of the composition the uh, of the plasma
1: Largely. Largely, it's uh, determined by the amount of the charge that uh, the ions carry and how far next to each other they are passing uh, in this region. So this is the so-called impact parameter. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine the centers of the two ions passing each other, so what's the closest distance that they uh, pass each other by? That will be called the impact parameter. So depending on that impact parameter and the amount of the charge they carry and the energy they carry, because the larger is the energy of the ions in the accelerator, the faster they are moving, the larger is the current. So all of those things determine. So from every event. Yeah. Uh, you have a different magnetic field, so not only it's difficult to tell how big is the magnetic field in general, but actually it's even changing from collision to collision.
0: Mm. So that's a complication for measurement. So, so you were you were uh, you were going to talk about uh, an idea you and your uh, collaborators came up with,
1: right? So, uh, of course, there are some uh, indirect measurements of many of those things that I mentioned, for example uh if uh, the two ions are passing each other there is uh you could imagine a plane in which they are moving this is called the reaction plane yeah. so even the orientation of that reaction plane plane uh it's tilt, if you wish re- with respect to the detector is already a question mm. but that can be figured out by simply counting the particles Typically, you will find that in some regions, uh, let's say, if you think of that as equatorial plane, you will see more particles uh, or less, and then you would know that that's that plane, uh, or at least it tells you something about the orientation of that plane. The magnetic field will be typically perpendicular to that plane, well, basically because it's happening in the region between passing nuclei. But still, how can you tell it in a different way with a different measurement, what was the value of the field in the collision? And the idea is uh, somewhat similar to a thermometer that you use, infrared thermometer that you use to measure the temperature of the body, Mm -hmm. right? Without touching a person, you could aim a thermometer and measure temperature. That is basically uh, what you're measuring is the photons that are coming from a body.
0: Yeah
1: and they carry a certain spectrum, and the peak of that spectrum will tell you the temperature of the body. Yeah. So the same way, actually, we also measure the temperature of this gluon plasma in heavy-end collision by considering the photons, analyzing their spectrum, and seeing what it tells you about the typical energies, and therefore the typical temperature in this plasma. So, so what we yeah. decided is to make one step further and see if we can also tell the magnetic field from the same photons that we are measuring. Yeah. And the the way to tell about that would be to look at the uh, ellipticity of the emission. So roughly speaking, there will be, let's say, more photons emitted uh, perpendicularly to the magnetic field rather than in the direction of the magnetic field. And since we have a detector sort of surrounding the whole region, we will see that there will be more photons with some characteristic spectra going left and right and, let's say, fewer of them going up and down. And, and, and not that only... that Go ahead.
0: mean by ellipticity?
1: Well, essentially, yes. Yeah. Think of it as uh, something radiating in different ways, and if you look at it from left and right, it looks brighter. Or there is uh, more photons coming that way than if you look at it from up and down. And that will be essentially ellipticity. So it's like a bulb that is shining non-isotropically, more in some directions, less in the other directions. And then if you imagine sort of plotting the intensity as a function of the direction, you will see that it will be uh, giving you a certain profile of that intensity, and that will be elliptical in shape. So, strictly but, speaking, it will be ellipsoidal in shape, which will be either prolate
0: or oblate ellipsoid. Yeah, I, I, it sounds a bit like polarization.
1: Uh, there is some something like that, but yeah. polarization typically carries the information about the plane of polarization of a given light. Yes. This is not telling you about that at all. It's only the intensity, really. Hmm even though there could be also some signals in the uh, polarization of those photons, but even something as simple as the intensity of the emission will tell you already something. For example, if you have this profile that looks like a prolate, so roughly speaking more radiation coming north and south and less into the equatorial direction, that in this case, you might say, well, maybe this uh, direction of the prolate axis is actually the direction of the magnetic field. Right. And that's exactly what we're trying to figure out, but actually it sort of happens the other way around. The ellipticity is such that the emission tends to be uh, oblate, at least for those photons specifically that are observed in the detector. The the detector typically has some uh, limited resolution and only limited acceptance of different types of photons. So extremely soft photons with small energies will be very difficult to detect. Those that are detected happen to be in the region where they seem to show that the emission is uh, oblate. And in fact, that is the prediction what we find, that if the plasma is strongly magnetically uh, and strongly magnetized in a strong magnetic field, then actually the radiation will be primarily in the direction of the reaction plane, not perpendicularly to the reaction plane uh the direction which is also the uh, the magnetic field direction
0: so so this is a method uh by which you can uh, you you can sort of figure out the magnetic fields uh parameters
1: right. So uh, of course, not only uh, we have uh, the thermal emission. so basically the emission changes when when the temperature of the plasma changes, but also it's um, shaped by the presence of the magnetic field. So analyzing the overall intensity, we can tell something about the temperature, analyzing the uh, electricity, we will hopefully be able to tell something about the magnetic field. Now the only problem, of course, uh, it's it's not a foolproof approach. How, however, I should also mention the thing is that that plasma will be radiating uh, ellipsoidally with this kind of profile, even without the magnetic field. Unfortunately,
0: yeah, and
1: that happens because the plasma is actually behaving almost like hydrodynamic fluid that is expanding primarily in the directions uh, in the reaction plane, and therefore. This, uh, this expansion will also drive a uh, somewhat similar signal of the ellipticity. But previous, previous uh, theoretical studies showed that just the hydrodynamic evolution cannot explain enough of this ellipticity that is observed in the detector. So we are claiming that it is the magnetic field that is adding up. And precisely how much it's adding up will give you the idea about the strength
0: of the field. Yeah. So, so the challenge continues as you power up. Uh, exactly. <laughs> large it's ad- never-ending yeah. challenge. <laughs> right. Challenge of measurements. So so, so in conclusion, Igor, um, I just want to go back to the Dirac and Wild semi-metals. Um, where do you think uh, that would take us? If, if you were to pick one or two areas where we could find practical applications in the next 10, 15, 20 years, where do you think they may, they may uh, make an impact?
1: Uh, well, I wish I could see the future. I don't know for sure. I have absolutely no reservation telling you that there will be many yeah. Applications, most of them will be mundane, simple. They will be in terms of efficiency, in terms of uh, new types of technologies that are simply uh, based on better properties, technological properties, something as simple as. Uh, uh, resist, resistance, conductivity properties, the response uh, of those uh, properties to different effects, With,
0: external fields, uh, controls. Less power, less power Sorry. use in electronics.
1: Power use actually is one of those potential applications. It's it's a it's a huge a huge uh, important goal to be reached uh, to uh, find efficient ways of generating power. Yeah, uh, harvesting solar power and uh, some of these materials, they have exceptional properties in terms of at least not losing mm. some of the generated powers. In some other cases, they are actually uh, speculated to be promising materials for actual um, solar cells. And the controls and catalysts. In fact, one of the things that we didn't even touch about, there are some very unusual properties of this uh, materials on their surface. Mm. So they could be actually very efficient catalysts in uh, some chemical processes. Mm. Mm. So this this uh, huge range of possibilities that the new types of material open materials open is of course uh, incomprehensible at the present <laughs> right. just like the semiconductors that first were discovered actually people thought they were useless yeah in fact uh, some famous uh, physicists who were the founders of quantum mechanics they were saying I believe it was Pauli uh, who was saying uh, there is absolutely no use for these dirty materials, semiconductors, who would ever want to use them. Now, we know it's far from true. (laughs) With the discovery of any new type of materials that we didn't have before, the ingenuity of people will just trigger and we will start making applications because we didn't have this this, uh, building block before.
0: Right, right excellent yeah it's it's really exciting research um thanks so much for spending time with me igor oh it's my pleasure i'm uh,
1: so glad uh, we talked about this thank you thank you Bye.
0: this is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.